Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Amen. And please be seated, except for the junior high department. You are going now with a very handsome group of leaders, one of them my daughter. So have a great time. They're studying the same thing that we are only in a language that's a little closer to where they're at. So let me just tell you that this was a week of costly, deferred, yet scheduled car maintenance. Yeah, most of the time I'm a DIY kind of guy, but there are a few jobs above my pay grade or beyond my time budget Jobs such as the infamous Japanese-made timing belt water pump job. Those of you with a Honda or Toyota know exactly what I'm talking about. Every 70 to 80 to 100,000 miles, you're going to open that sucker up and you're going to pay big, big bucks to replace those things, lest you have a catastrophic malfunction. So... This past week, we were 40,000 miles overdue, and I did that with knowledge, and by the skin of my teeth, we made it. While they were in there, I said yes to everything, and I'm saying, saying belts, pulleys, hoses, spark plugs, broken motor mount, yes, yes, yes. I need to let you know, I absolutely abhor Paying for things that aren't broken. That's why I'm a DIY guy. I'll I'll do the maintenance, but I I want to get a bargain. And I hate spending that amount of money. It was an enormous amount. I got a great deal, probably better than what you would get. But it was enormous. Enormous, but you want to know something that I hate far more than a maintenance bill. A stranded wife. And an endangered family. Or a catastrophic engine failure. I hate those things even worse. And so you bite the bullet. You don't want to be penny wise, pound foolish. You don't want to trip over a dollar to pick up a dime. If you're going to own a vehicle, maintain the vehicle. Because there are things that can happen down the road, things that you hope that won't happen to you. I'm not saying you can control everything, but when it's scheduled maintenance, you can control that. So if you're going to own it, maintain it. Listen, there's a principle that's universal, that comes out of this story, that applies everywhere that you can look, and it's actually the bottom line to our message today. So let me just drop it on you, and then we'll see how it applies eventually to this text. But here's the bottom line, little things. You notice the quotes? Why do I put that in quotes? Because these quotes mean so-called little things. That's what those quotes mean. So-called little things, that does not mean they are unimportant things. But little things ignored... Ah, it'll be okay. Ah, I don't want to deal with that right now. Become big things deplored. That word carries with it the weight of remorse, regret, and hostility. I abhor, I deplore these kinds of major malfunctions. I have remorse, I have regret. You know what? I said it's universally true. Ask your doctor. Ask your doctor. Your H1C is off the charts? You better pay attention to that. Men, your PSA is going crazy? Pay attention to that. Uh, Your BMI is out of whack. You know what that means? Body mass index? Pay attention to the little things on your health report, on your pathology report. Those aren't little things. They might be details that are manageable right now. But pay attention, there's 100, 200 other kinds of things in the medical, other little acronyms that stand for things, but ask your doctor. This applies. You don't just ignore those things. Ask your CPA. 
We got several of them in here today. Yeah, people that ignore their taxes or their tax liability issues. Don't ignore that thing. And yes, it absolutely applies to marriage. Ask your spouse. You think it's a little thing. Ignore it long enough. It will be a major thing. And yes, it applies to us spiritually. Those little things, those little compromises in our life that we think it's no big deal. Normal people do this all the time. No big deal. I only do it once a week. Little compromises. And yes, absolutely, it applies to us corporately. It applies to church health. Little things ignored. Say, it's not that big a deal. It's not that extreme right now. You just kind of ignore that. Will in time become big things deplored. See, this is a year of church health here at Journey. You ask, what are we doing? What's our vision for uh, whatever year it is? 2023, I guess. Uh, what are we doing this year? We are digging deep. In all the things that we know, Jesus holds us responsible for. And since there's so much confusion out there in the world, books and blogs and seminaries and even opinions in the congregation, what is church health? We are doing a deep dive through the New Testament, not all of the New Testament, specifically what I consider to be the most clear and simple of all church health teachings. These are seven progress reports, seven report cards to seven historical churches. And when you want to know what church health is, what it means, what Jesus expects from his churches, there's no better place than Revelation 2 through 3. If you have your Bibles, it's the last book in the collection of the New Testament, just before, Pastor Tyler said this last week, right before the maps. So it's, it's right before the maps, Revelation, and we're only doing a deep dive into chapter 2 and 3 in context with chapter 1. If you look up on the screen, you'll see a map of the seven churches and where they're located. This is Asia Minor, it's modern-day Turkey, and you see Ephesus is first, it's the port city. And the way Jesus wrote these letters, and some would argue that, that the rest of the churches were planted out of Ephesus. So Ephesus comes first. We go up north to Smyrna, and then over to Pergamum. Next week, Thyatira, and around the clock, clockwise. And Jesus, one by one, is talking about the distinguishing qualities, what makes them different, where they are strong, where, where they are weak. Um, I need to let you know that these were historical churches. The letters are actually written, addressed first and foremost to the, what I believe to be the lead pastor, and yet the whole church is called to account for the health of the ministry. But secondly, these seven churches are seven kinds of churches that you will find in every day and every age. The final thing that I have not said yet, um, nor did Tyler, but it's a fascinating thing, thing to consider, the possibility that these seven churches could represent seven eras of the church of Jesus Christ thus far. And, and there's some really good evidence for that. We're not going to fight over that, but, but mind-blowing as you study church history over the ages and see the striking similarities to that actual epic or, or era of the church. And yes, we would now be living in Laodicea. Um, we're not there yet, but the reality is that at any point in time around the world, there are churches that fall into any one of these major seven categories. So it's our commitment to dive in there and say, Jesus, what do you have for us? It's 95 AD. The Apostle John is likely the final, the last remaining living apostle of the original 12. He's exiled it's a Sunday, and he is in the Spirit when he is visited by the resurrected, exalted Lord Jesus Christ, who tells him, write down what you see and hear. And he addresses through John the entire book of Revelation to these seven churches. Before he gets into the detail and the, the wow of, of the Revelation, he gives John seven 
unique, specific letters to each one of these churches. Ephesus, two weeks ago, we saw was the church with grit, determination, and discernment, but no love. Last week, Pastor Tyler walked us into one of my favorites, the church at Smyrna. They were, they were persecuted and financially impoverished, but the Lord Jesus loved them dearly and told them that they were spiritually very wealthy. And so that we shouldn't always judge a persecuted church, a struggling church. This week, we look at the church in Pergamum. Starting in verse 12 of chapter 2. Hopefully you're open to that by now. If not, it'll be up here. Let's read what the letter is to the church at Pergamum. Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Pergamum write. The words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Uh, that can be also translated, your faith in me. You've not cast aside your Christian testimony, in other words. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching. The word there in the Greek is didache, which is doctrine. That's where we get the word doctrine. There's the, a false doctrine of someone named Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we see a relationship between the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of some group called the Nicolaitans. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the letter to the church at Pergamum. Well, lo located about... 50 miles north of Smyrna, the church at Pergamum, or the, per the town of Pergamum, if you will, was known for its civilization and its learning. It was also noted for pottery and tapestries, but most importantly, parchments. Yeah, it actually had the second largest library in the entire world, second only to the library in Alexandria, Egypt. And in fact, the name Pergamum comes from the same root word as parchment. So this is a really big deal here in Pergamum. A place of great learning and great resources of knowledge. But Pergamum was also known as one of Asia's religious centers. And it's actually described by Jesus two times. It's stated that it's the place of Satan's throne. Why in the world would it be called the place of Satan's throne? Well, they were just as idolatrous as many other cities, or should I say many other cities were just as idolatrous as they were. Uh, a, a myriad, a pantheon of different false gods to choose from, but three in particular made this place particularly sinister. Let me walk you through them. First off, it was the center of worship of a false god named Asclepius. Asclepius the Savior. And you go, who is Asclepius? Asclepius was the serpent god of healing. In fact, our modern emblem for emergency medicine is an ode or uh, a hat tip to Asclepius. I was hoping that it would be Moses in the serpent in the wilderness. But it is not. It is Asclepius. In Asclepius, uh, there was a hospital, a university, and a temple to this god, Asclepius, the Savior. Secondly, there was a great altar to Zeus, the high point of the city. 
there was a great altar and temple to the Greek god Zeus. Now, two things that are fascinating about these two individuals is nobody's required to bow down to them and worship them. So big deal. There's pagans. Christians can go about their business and don't participate in that stuff. There's one more, however, that's very unique in Pergamum. They were the first to gain the title Temple Sweeper. Uh, they were the center of what was described as uh, the imperial cult or the center of emperor worship. In fact, the city had a temple dedicated to, and I quote, to the divine Augustus and goddess Roma. So that's Rome. And there was a temple that was, that was built in 29 BC. And in time, two more temples would be added to Roman emperors in this city. I've already said the Christians didn't need to bow down to Asclepius. Christians were not required to worship Zeus or any of the other false gods. But guess who they were required to bow down and pay homage to? The emperor. In fact, Domitian, um, who we believe is reigning at this time, had passed a law that he be addressed as the god and Lord, that he would be called uh, deity, and all residents, you didn't even have to be a Roman citizen, all residents of Roman-owned or controlled provinces would swear fealty and allegiance to the czar, to the king, to the president, and to the nation. Christians knew better that their allegiance and worship belonged only to their risen Lord and Savior. They were, by the way, the best citizens imaginable. You wanted a Christian as your neighbor. But when it was demanded that you would bow down and kiss the ring or worship at the altar to the Roman emperor, Christians simply could not and would not bow the knee and worship a different God than Jesus himself. So this is why they get the title, the place where Satan's throne is. Go back to verse 13. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. This is a powerful word picture that, that these were Christians that were robust and courageous and rooted. They were not running away. They were not looking for greener grass, greener pastures. They weren't looking for a more peaceable existence. They believed that God had placed them in that city. For the gospel in that city as a witness to the many pagans around them. They weren't looking to escape to a better place. They were dwelling there. He goes on to say it's where Satan's throne is. We already looked at that and check this out. They're a witnessing church. They're evangelistically effective. Look you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. That, that they, they were a strong witness to the truth, the liberating truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the gospel that sets people free not only from sin, but futility and emptiness and delivers them to a life of true human and spiritual flourishing. And they were a witness to this very dark city so much so that one of their own had paid the ultimate price for an evangelistic witness. His name, Antipas. Now, most commentators won't touch this. I just like the story. It's very plausible. But in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, there is a teaching on who this individual was, Antipas. So I can't prove this. This does not rise to uh, biblical uh, authority. But according to the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Antipas was a disciple of John, the one who is writing down Revelation. And that he was the bishop of Pergamum. He was their head leader at one point in time. That he was murdered during the reign of Domitian. 
for his aggressive stand against idolatry and his outstanding evangelistic Christian witness somewhere around the, the, the day or year 92 A.D. And tradition has it that he was murdered, uh, burned alive inside a, a bronze bull at the temple to Diana. That's how he honored his Lord and Savior. And the rest of the church didn't shrink back and say, oh my goodness, tone it down, look what could happen. We got to be careful now. They actually stood beside Antipas and say, well done, pastor. Great witness. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3, who Nebuchadnezzar built a golden statue, said, you're going to all bow down to it when the music starts. And they said, we can't do it. And he said, if you don't, we're going to burn you alive in the furnace. And they said, God can deliver us of the, the furnace, but even if he doesn't, let it be known, we will never bow down to a false god. And the Christians, in the same manner, stood strong in the face of such threats and persecution. Let me just say that, that because of their spiritual conviction, they were a great light for the gospel. And Jesus commends them for their faithful service, uh, their faithful witness in that city because of standing strong in the face of such a costly uh, witness. So here's the deal. They get an A plus in courage, grit, and evangelistic witness. And I want you to just notice these things are essential for church health. You cannot be a healthy church without these things. You cannot be a healthy Christ follower without these things. Grit, courage, evangelistic witness. But while they were so focused on faithfulness, something very subtle had begun to seep into the church. This is fascinating because persecution does not guarantee purity. It can certainly help. It can burn away the nonsense in the church. The infighting over minor points of doctrine. But it does not guarantee purity. So, Jesus says in verse 14 and 15, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I want you to notice the church at Ephesus resisted this same false teaching. They hated the work, works of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus says, I hate it too. Well done, but they'd lost their love. So the church in Ephesus resisted this false teaching. Smyrna endured persecution. Pergamum had to deal with both. They had it coming from two different sides. And while they were so focused on grit and tenacity and faithfulness in the face of persecution, something else started to seep in at the same time. They got an A-plus in courage, grit, and witness, but a D-minus in discernment, doctrine, and discipline. Go discipline. Oh my goodness, we're kicking people out now. Um, same word as discipleship. We pull it out, we extract it for a portion of discipleship that is described in the scriptures as correction. And we all need it at times. I need correction. I need a rebuke at times. In this church, D minus in discernment, doctrine, and discipline. And I want to just take you to an even deeper principle that's at one of your fill in the blanks. And, and this goes back, and you see it again and again in the New Testament, that we do have a real enemy. Pastor Tyler talked about this last week. There is a real enemy, a spiritual being, and, and many that are far more vast and intricate than just good guys with wings that all look the same that rebelled. There are persons, spiritual beings, 
led by what we believe to be an archdemon, Lucifer, the devil. And here's the deal. He's the enemy of our souls. He's against any and every image bearer, whether they belong to him and are in bondage to him or been delivered from him. He hates our guts and wants us dead. This is the enemy. What he cannot accomplish as a roaring lion, that's a reference to 1 Peter. The roaring lion who prowls about seeking someone to devour. What he cannot accomplish as a roaring lion. Because Pergamum had passed the test of the roaring lion. They were resisting the roaring lion. What he cannot accomplish as the roaring lion, he will attempt as a subtle serpent. And what's fascinating is in Peter's two letters, 1 Peter, he's the roaring lion. Persecution's coming. It's in your face. In 2 Peter, you're like, you guys survived the persecution. Something else is happening under the surface, something subtle, something sinister, false teaching is coming in. That's the exact same thing that's happening here in Pergamum. What the enemy can't accomplish as a roaring lion, he will tempt as a subtle serpent. What he, he, he knows how to shapeshift from being an aggressive, terrifying monster into a friendly, doctrinal, or theological advisor. He knows how to get in there and say, think of it this way. You know, I'm wondering if, do we really need, and he comes alongside and he starts to introduce ideas that seem plausible and, and helpful and, and loving. I want to take you back to what I, I think, it's, it's not my life verse, but as far as ministry and discipleship, it's my key verse. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. And I want you to see this. They all need to align what's described in 1 Timothy 1.5, where Paul tells Timothy, the aim of our charge, the word there can be our, our doctrine, our teaching that's not just information, but lifestyle and behavior and morality. The aim of our charge is love. You go, oh, cool, it's love. Love is love is love. And love is loving, and we love love. And churches that are loving are really awesome. And the world does not complain against love. But notice where the love flows from and how love is modified in this text. Love that issues from a pure heart. It's not morally mixed or defiled. Secondly, it's a good conscience. This has to do with the mind and the logic and the reason. So not only is it bubbling up from a pureness of heart, but a logical flow that makes sense, that's true to God's word. And then finally, a sincere faith. You're not using Christianity, what Pastor Tyler was mentioning last week, uh, as a... Uh, um, individualism, what's that called? Moralistic therapeutic deism, but uh, expressive individualism. Thank you. Aren't you so glad that he's here today so I could get that word? We're not using Christianity for our own fulfillment, but we're basically saying we believe Jesus died for our sins and rose again from the dead, and he deserves our allegiance. And here's the deal. I just named five things. Instruction, love, pure of heart, Good conscience and sincere faith, and you get just one of those wrong. And you're stranded out in the desert with catastrophic engine failure. Broken down, something that you can't afford. And so back to this, little things ignored become big things deplored. Let me just walk you through how subtle it can be, because there's a couple words in this, in verses 14 through 15. Some... Balaam, stumbling block, some, and Nicolaitans. What do they all have in common? They're subtle. They're subtle. Some, not many, not every, just some. And the church can have plausible deniability. We don't believe that. Oh, a few, well, sure, over there. No, just some. You look at the word stumbling block. It's not horrific heresy. It's not outright apostasy. It's just a stumbling block. Who's Balaam? I mentioned uh, Numbers 25. The children of Israel are walking across the desert and they're entering the territory of Moab. And the Moabite king, Balak, is terrified because he's heard the stories of God's blessing on the people of Israel. So he hires a true prophet of God that has a moral weakness called greed. Do you read the text and you go, whoa, this guy really did know and walk with 
Yahweh God. And so three times Balak tries to pay him to offer a curse in Yahweh's name against the children of Israel, and he can't do it. God stops him. It's, it's, uh, you even read the story about Balaam's donkey standing in, in that. It's that context, if you've ever heard of that story, uh, that account. But Balaam cannot curse them. God keeps stopping him and turns the curse into a blessing. Numbers 25, 26, 27. Balak is, is just angry. And it's fascinating that that point of the story just stops. And the next thing that you start to read is the men of Israel having sex with the women of Moab and participating in Moab idolatry. And right there, the scripture is silent as to how that happened. It's not until Numbers 31 that you find out how it happened. It's so subtle, it's not even mentioned. What happened is Balaam said, hey, I got to do what God tells me to do. I can only say what he tells me to say. You wanted me to curse, I can't curse. I actually have to bless because God told me to bless. But you know what? Just under the table, let me give you a suggestion. And he puts out his hand, so to speak, for payment and goes, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how you can bring them down. Why don't you have your women be very seductive, alluring, and available? Entice the men of Israel into sexual immorality. Then it will lead to idolatry, breaking faith with Yahweh. Yahweh will have to turn on them and discipline them. And sure enough, 24,000 Israelites died in judgment. And you find out it was Balaam that taught him how to do it because he wanted the money. It was subtle. Same thing's going on with the Nicolaitans. They had found a way around persecution by saying, tone it down, man. Careful how you say it. Do you have to teach the scriptures so bluntly? Good grief, do you see we're going to get in trouble here? And by the way, it's not that big a deal. There's really good food, really good steaks up at the temple restaurants. And guess what? Even if you get a little crazy, go out to dinner with your neighbors, have a great steak at the temple of, of whomever, and you get a little crazy, guess what? Jesus forgives. So stop getting so crazy and dogmatic about everything. This was the subtlety and the teaching of the Nicolaitans that had seeped in amongst them. And exactly what happened at Pergamum has been happening in our nation for the last 50 to 60 years. I could tell you story after story after story after story of story, not only of students in my youth ministry, not only middle-aged people, not only adults, full-blown adults, but also very elderly people who call themselves born-again Jesus followers, capitulating to culture in a way that you go, there's no way that can be according to the scriptures. Pastor Tyler just told me about a book right before the service started. And I go, what's that? After the revolution? And it's a study of what has transpired in the church in America post-sexual revolution. People our churches are a hot mess. And I'm talking from, from the hookup culture to cohabiting to capitulation to uh, an anti-biblical sexual ethic concerning LGBTQ in that there are people, there are amazing ministers. Their son comes out of the closet and says, I'm gay, mom. And mom can't hold truth and grace intention, so she capitulates and go, love gotta love okay I guess God was wrong uh, this is my son I gotta love him and she can't say no son I love you I don't agree with this but I want you to know I will never stop loving you nor will there ever not be a bridge back to relationship with Christ or us she doesn't know how to, to, to keep a candle lit in the window and say, but that's the light of the gospel. You are welcome back at any time and I will love you. But instead it's just like, well, he says he's born that way. And so we just got to love him. And I guess it really is 
um, we did have it wrong in the faith, and the Bible did have it wrong, and we misunderstood the scriptures. And people, it's happening over and over and over and over and over. And I can tell you the people's names. Tone it down, Pastor Jim. Can't we just be loving? Guess what? Truth or, or love without truth is not love. They are not ant antithetical one to another. In order to be loving love, it must be truthful love. And we're not saying that we actually survived the sexual revolution well. Every single one of us in here was stained by it. Every single one of us in some way, shape, or form participated in it. I did not get through my teenage years unscathed, nor am I safe even today from idolatry and or sexual immorality. So I'm not even claiming moral superiority. I'm just saying I'm claiming the truth. And we're all under the truth. Things were about to get messy in this church if they didn't start addressing what was going on. In fact, the introduction to the letter is very powerful. Verse 12, to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The Greek word for the two-edged sword is the Roman battle sword. It's huge. It's a huge sword. And what could this mean? I've got four ideas. First off, it's a sword greater than that of the Roman emperor who is demanding allegiance and threatening death. Jesus' sword is greater. Secondly, it's a two-edged sword, one that can heal or kill, bless or curse, wound or make well. It's two-edged. Thirdly, it's a sword that distinguishes between the world and the church, between the forgiven and the unforgiven, between the redeemed and the lost. And finally, it's a sword that will wage war within the church to purify his bride. It's a sword of war against sin in his people. Jesus in verse 16 says, repent, therefore repent. If not, I will come soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. So now we have an idea. It's the word, the words of Jesus. This shows up again and again in scripture. The sharp two-edged sword that comes out of the, the, the words, the powerful and effective words of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, for the word of God, the words that come out of the mouth of God, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, the, the spoken word, the written word, the scriptures that we study here this morning. Wow, why not say, hey, I, I might struggle with this, but I don't say it's untrue. I want to bow the knee to it. I don't get it right all the time, but I love it. It is the path of spiritual and human flourishing. That's why we love the word of God. Commentator Leon Morris says this, the word is either a comfort and a strength to us or else it destroys us. Do you love the word of God, the words of Jesus? Because many in the church at Pergamum were going to experience Christ's discipline if the church, the pastor, and the people didn't step in and address this, if they continued to be morally passive or neutral about the Nicolaitan heresy. So what's the solution? The solution is right there in the text. Repent. Literally means change your mind. Stop saying that you, what you think and believe is the best. And you're just going to stay in your rut of theological thinking and, or, or morality and live in error. Repent. And it's fascinating because there's only some who hold to the heresy, but all are called to repentance. Why? Because they were abdicating something that the Lord Jesus Christ said, don't make me come and do it. I gave you the authority and the responsibility to do this. Do not wait for Jesus to do that which he is waiting on you to do. And he's calling the entire church to repent Genesis 4, 9, after Cain kills his brother, and the Lord says, hey, where's your brother? And he goes, I don't know, liar. He's, he's a liar. He goes, am I my brother's keeper? 
He's thumbing his nose at God like, I don't know what he's doing. Am I my brother's keeper? And he thinks that that's actually a good argument. And what's the right answer? Yes. Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Yes, we are. Yes, we are our brother's keeper and our sister's keeper. Jesus is calling them to repent. What would repentance mean in this instance? Church discipline slash restoration. Why do I slash that and squish them together? Because many people, when they hear church discipline, they, get, they think, oh my goodness, this is like excommunication and what a mean, unloving. How could, how could a modern church do such, such an ancient, antiquated nonsense? Listen, church discipline is always about restoration. Restoration of the individual, restoration of the health of the body. That's why. So they are called to repent and exercise loving biblical church discipline slash restoration. And here's the fill in the blank that I want you to see here. We who are spiritual, that's in quotes because that's taken from Galatians 6.1. We'll look at it in just a moment. We who are spiritual will be held responsible. Don't wait for him to show up and do it for us. That's going to be trouble for everyone. He's given us the, the, the responsibility. So with the remainder of our time, what I want to do is give you a short biblical theology of church discipline. Short. Very short. Because it's a very broad topic that runs from Genesis to Revelation. So here's the first step. Start with self. Start with self. Look at yourself first. This is the Jesus' Jesus's words from the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? And a lot of times we stop there and go, yeah, I got a log in mine. We don't do discipline. We don't, I'm not going to be arrogant like that. I, who am I anyway? I'm no better than they are. And we stop there and we disobey Christ. Because we stop there. Look at the rest of what he says. You hypocrite, first take out the log of your own eye, and then, then what? You can see clearly to do the rest of the job. But start with you. Question. Where are you at this morning with idolatry and immorality? If we're looking at the context of our text this morning. Are there any things that rival the Lord Jesus Christ in your life where you say, no, I will not bow the knee to any others. First and foremost and always, forever, in my heart, mind, and with my decisions, Jesus is Lord. Start with you. Then try to help others. That's number two. Um, I want you to see not legalism, but true spiritual discernment. Everything is not an issue. And I just got to put that in here as another guardrail because there are some that's like, I told you we weren't supposed to ever watch TV. Really? Good for you if that's your issue of conscience, but that's not a rule for everyone. Here's what Paul said to the church of Colossae, chapter 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if we are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religions and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What he's saying is there's the real thing, the biblical thing, the true thing, and then the made-up, nonsensical, religious-y thing. And please do not get these two confused. Because we have a lot of error of how we mix and match those categories and mess it up. There is a real thing. But there's also a nonsense thing. Hebrews 5 describes what must happen in our lives in order to be good at knowing what category does it belong and to what degree do we uh, uh, deal with it. When the writer of Hebrews says, solid food is for the mature, but for, the, for those who have their powers of discernment, Trained by constant practice in distinguishing good and evil. So you got to know actually what belongs in which category and, and uh, as well as to what degree do you address them. Here's number three. Not aggressive moral superiority, but genuine spiritual restoration. 
I've had people that come and want to know from the pastor before they consider joining this church. Now, are you a church that exercises church discipline? And, and they're not looking for, oh, absolutely not. We don't believe in that antiquated stuff. They're looking for, I want to know the names and when you last kicked someone out. And the temptation is like, well, I guess I, I want this person. I better kick someone out really quick. <laughs> to prove that I love God and that we love God. Look, we're not looking. That's not the point. We're not trying to prove we're more godly by kicking someone out. But we're doing what Paul said to the church in Galatia. Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him. Restore him. Don't kick him out. It might come to that in an effort to restore. But you know, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. So not aggressive spiritual, moral superiority, but genuine, genuine spiritual restoration. Number four, not just the pastor, but all members of the true church. This is the other thing I see massively like, but I don't know that person. But I'm not their discipler, but I'm not, in, in, I, but, 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 but. Look what it says again in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual. Who are the spiritual? The Matthew 7 You've taken the log out of your eye. Period. End of sentence. Oh, you do it with wisdom and gentleness. Yes. But you're spiritual. Are you in Christ? Are you walking in the spirit? You're spiritual. You don't have to have a seminary degree. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to be ordained. It is a responsibility for everyone. Then number five. Wise and gentle, yet intentional. I can only afford, for time's sake, one verse. I'm choosing Jude... 22 and 23. That's two verses, but one passage, okay? Have mercy on those who doubt. There's an idea of kindness and, and mercy. Hey, I could be in your place. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. That's intentional. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The idea is wise and gentle, but intentional. Go after them care about people. Don't just let it passively take place under your nose and claim plausible deniability. And here's the promise from James chapter 5. Let him, who know, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Okay, that's a short course in biblical church discipline. And I hope it blesses you and I hope that you say, well, I don't like it. I don't like conflict, but sign me up. Let's do this. Let's be this one for another. Now, this ends with a couple of promises that I just want to outline. He who has an ear, and that's how we know it's to all Christians of all age. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Are you listening? Uh, listen to what the Spirit says to all the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, the, the the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So what are, these, what are these offers, what are these promises to those that say, I don't want a fight, but sign me up for faithfulness. Jesus promises hidden manna. What is that? Listen, as faithful believers, we're going to miss out on some raucous parties. You're going to miss out on some juicy steaks at the temple restaurant. There's going to be some moments that you're going to say, no, thank you. There's going to be times when you step off the dance floor and say, not that song. You're going to miss out on being cool. You're going to miss out on some feasts to idols. And Jesus says, for those that do, I got something better called hidden manna. Intimacy with me, the true bread of life. You want that? Something even better, right? Now, what about the white stone and the new name? The white stone, historically, used for three things. It was given to the victor of a game. It was used as entrance to a banquet or used by jurors at a trial to vote for acquittal. And yes, followers of Jesus that are born again spiritually are all three. Victors, 
invitees and those who have been let off the hook. But what about the new name? What is that? I believe, I cannot prove this, strong conviction, this is my God-given true self. Not my self-defined true self, my God-given true self. You ever notice throughout the scripture how God is in the business of renaming people? Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah, Jacob to Israel, Cephas to Peter, Saul to Paul. Here's my question. What's your true name? Who is your true God-given self? I don't know. I can't wait to find out. I think in the text, Antipas is renamed my faithful witness. What would you give for a name like that? And to hear the Lord Jesus say, this is between you and me. You're my faithful witness. Thank you. To him who overcomes hidden manna in a white stone with a new name. Want to be faithful? I do. Let's pray. Father, we don't want to be a broken down vehicle because we ignored little things, so-called little things that were growing beneath the hood. We want to be faithful. Lord, what is there today in each of our lives, each of our families, each of our marriages, each of our, our places of work, things that you say, don't wait for me. Take up your responsibility and your authority and do business with kindness and gentleness, but intentionality. Lord, help us to be those people that we might not only inherit eternal life, but Lord, that we might receive these beautiful rewards, intimacy with you. Be called your champions and faithful witnesses. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.